You're listening to All That Matters. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Kay Rollins. All That Matters is a weekly show about arts and culture. Each week, we try to take small bites out of a big question. On today's episode, creators and consumers. How do we shift from consuming what other people make to actually creating it ourselves? Kay, have I ever told you about the time that I wrote a musical? Chris, you you wrote a musical? I wrote a musical. Amazing. I didn't write the original music, but let me tell you the story. Um, It accidentally taught me a lesson about this question. Uh, When I was in university, I did a year abroad in West Africa. A class of us went to Ghana to learn about international development. And on one of our class trips, my friend Jen and I started singing for Moulin Rouge as we walked through the rainforest. And we had so much fun doing it, we thought it might be fun to do a class musical. So I started writing a script that uh, tied together a lot of songs that I thought were easy to learn from musicals like Moulin Rouge and Chicago and The Lion King and this Nigerian pop song that we all liked. And I tried to thread a love story through all these ideas we were learning in class about a chieftaincy crisis and biofuels. Uh, So I told everybody in the group, you know, we're writing this thing. Do you want to be a part of it? And I was just crushed because only half of our classmates wanted to be in it. Well, half is pretty good. Half is pretty good for some international development nerds. Uh, But at the time, I was disappointed that more people weren't into it. Until I realized that we needed an audience to perform the show, too. (laughs) That seems pretty crucial. Yeah. And when we did finally perform it, it was great. A huge amount of fun, and having written and performed in it, I always remember what I learned about land displacement and biofuels. But it did teach me that both performers and audience members matter. Totally. So our question today is, is how do we get some of those people out of their seats and onto the stage making things? Because without people putting themselves out there and actually creating the culture and art that we enjoy, they're wouldn't be any culture or art to enjoy. Yeah. Well, in the second half of our show, we've got a story about one of the emerging technologies that we always hear is going to turn us all into makers. And uh, to start off, I've got a story about one person's trip along that path. And for a little background, so just stay with me here, I'm going to talk about a website eHow, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with it, it's the site that pops up on Google when you need to know how to tie a tie right before a big meeting. eHow to the rescue, their article, How to Tie a Necktie Step-by-Step with Pictures, will get you through your difficult time. But eHow articles go beyond the purely pragmatic. They have articles on how to stop being jealous and insecure, or how to fall in love with a nice person. Both of those tasks have five steps, by the way. (laughs) And they even have a step-by-step guide on how to become an artist. So that got me wondering, is becoming an artist as easy as ticking off a list of generic steps? One, two, three? Well, I I talked to Lizzie Dirksen uh, about the process of moving from art consumer to art creator. So maybe I'll just like read the first half page or something? Sure, perfect. Okay. The time I attacked some JWs with Meadow Spade, I was seven. I don't blame my parents or my small community's fanaticism or fundamentalism for my idea or my initial enthusiasm for carrying it out. If I had been rooted in any conviction to speak of, I might not have slunk back when the blonde lady said hello to me. But I was merely a psychopath in the way that all children are psychopaths, and I was also a coward. We were living in, in Lizzie Dirksen made me breakfast the other day. 
Lizzie is a writer and artist living in Old Strathcona. We got to talking. There are so many ideas about what it means to be an artist. The devotion, the commitment, the sacrifice, sometimes even the suffering that is at some times and by some people felt to be required. Is art a job? A lifestyle? A calling? Is it a tradition? Do artists have some sort of spark or some kind of divinity that the rest of us don't? With all the different concepts and opinions about what an artist is and isn't, and all the cultural mystique we set up around the great artists of our time, how does a person actually go about becoming an artist? How do you gain that title? How do you give it to yourself, and, and how do you cross the floor from appreciator of the arts to artist and creator? You know, though, I had a really hard time coming to terms with the fact that um, whatever I value about myself that enabled me to be creative was was exactly the same thing that made it difficult for me to function as an adult. <laughs> and that was like, it was really embarrassing, it was really, um, I really did not like that idea because I wanted to have it all, like, I want to be, um, I want to be a normal functional adult, I want to be successful in all kinds of, kinds of conventional ways, and I want to be a writer, right? Um, that is not how it's panning out. And I'm more fine with that now, but <laughs> it, was, it was not a fun conclusion to come to. Lizzie calls herself an artist. She owns that title, but that ownership took time and effort. Over bagels and papaya, Lizzie explained to me how she got to that point. Uh, when did you start writing? Um, when I was five. Cool, I don't even know if I could write when I was five. Um, I, I guess you start in kindergarten. Yeah, well I say that because I, I really vividly remember writing a poem before I could spell any of the words in it, um, and having to like ask my mom how to spell um, mad because the poem was about how mad I was <laughs> um but then I you know became a very stereotypical little girl who read all the time and um just wanted to be a writer like a novelist I guess so this is like something you've thought about since you were five yeah I wanted to be a writer but I was more interested in in reading um than writing I didn't really feel like I knew how to write anything and I was never satisfied with anything that I wrote, so I wouldn't do it. But, um, but I started writing a lot of poems when I was um, 14. I started writing poems every day. I think when I was a teenager, like at least for the first couple years of high school, I probably wrote like 300 poems. As a kid, you wanted to be a writer. And then what, you know, what changes? What, how did you go from wanting to be a writer, wanting to be an artist, and to actually becoming a writer and becoming an artist? Um, I wasn't willing to call myself a writer or an artist until last year. Um, even though I, I feel like I started working pretty seriously when I was about 15, um, I think it was partly actually realizing that um, I didn't feel any desire or qualification to work in any other field. <laughs> People so like would ask necessity, me what I wanted. Do you think? Not necessity, but just um, starting to realize that um, if this was what I wanted to do, I would have to start working at it, um, and not really seeing any other desirable future, um, and also getting my first boyfriend. 
um, <laughs> that um, inspired a oh, lot of terrible poems. <laughs> yeah. So, but, so what changed? What changed? Um, I think what changed is that I got to um, my early 20s and, and kind of uh, looked back and said, well, um, you've been deliberately and, you know, somewhat seriously writing for the last, like, seven or eight years of your life, um, but you're terrified to do anything about it beyond, you know, publishing zines. Um, and yet, you know, this is what you want to do. Um, if you if you actually want to do it, then then do it, and stop pretending and stop apologizing for it. I guess. Um, so there wasn't anything too profound, and there wasn't anything that really coincided with a change in what I was actually working on. Um, and and actually, probably the biggest thing that I did was just started saying, "Oh, I'm a writer," mm-hmm. <laughs> which felt very uncomfortable for a long time, and. Um, especially when people were like, oh, what do you do? And it was like, well, I write things. But do you think this is something, like, that anybody could do? Is it one of those, you know, you put your mind to it and, and it'll happen kinds of things? Or is it is it different? Well, I think it's probably uh, twofold. Like, I think that making a conscious decision to take your, yourself and your ideas seriously is is kind of um, non-negotiable. I don't think you can really do anything creative without that. Like, I think, I say, like, all the time in my own defense that, like, <laughs> that, like you have to be pretty arrogant to be an artist. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that after you've done that, you, you kind of... Uh, also have to do something about it um, and something pretty pretty concrete um, and, and less, unless you're willing to back up that sort of decision with some form of action um, I don't think you can really do anything else but it was kind of interesting how I didn't really know what kind of action needed to follow that decision um, yeah. it took a while to figure that out it's one thing to say I'm going to be an artist now and it's another thing to yeah. To actually do it. But I think that it also gave me some freedom. Like, once I was willing to say, like, this is my job, um, I was also willing to say, like, um, so what I need to do is just kind of, like, show up for work in a sense. Like, I don't have to feel inspired all the time. I don't have to... Nothing um, has to be perfect uh, the first time it comes out. Um, I have this license to work on it. Like, mm-hmm. um, which was... A pretty profound shift. Does it feel like something you you need to do, like on like an existential level? Is it something you yes. need to do? Yes. Um, yes. Uh, I probably wouldn't get up in the morning unless I could. <laughs> Is art some kind of magic? Do artists exist on some other level of sensitivity to the world? Is there something mythic about the position of an artist? Well, maybe. I would even venture a probably. But they're also just trying to get out of bed in the morning, like everybody else. Thanks to Lizzie Dirksen for talking with me and, of course, for breakfast. Uh, If you'd like to read some of Lizzie's work, you can visit her blog at www.lizziedirksen.com. That's L-I-Z-Z-I-E-D-E-R-K-S-E-N.com. 
and you are listening to All That Matters. I'm Kay Rollins. And I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. Each week on All That Matters, we try to take small bites out of a big question. So today, we're asking, how do we move from being consumers to becoming creators? Well, for our next story, All That Matters reporter Steph Varga and I headed to the library to try out one of the most hyped up technologies these days, a technology that some people say will transform us all into creators of our own stuff. Ben Ellers has a very cool job. I presume that although your tag says Scrabble Ninja, that's not your title. <laughs> right, my name is Ben Ellers. I'm a makerspace assistant at Edmonton Public Library. The makerspace is this unlikely place at the Stanley Milner Library downtown in Edmonton. It's the main branch, so it gets a lot of unique programs at the Edmonton Public Library. It's a new space with things you wouldn't expect to see at a library a book printing machine, two recording studios, Lego robotics, and computers where you can play around with Photoshop. And Steph, you actually went to university with Ben Ellers, right? Yes, I'm a teacher, so he was in some of my education classes, which makes sense because his job is to introduce people to all these digital tools. And we were there to learn about one experiment in particular that they were hosting to try to tempt people into trying 3D printing for the first time. It is kind of fun to touch, though, because some of them are actually printed out of different materials. It's like this one's rubbery. Oh, really? And this one's like hard plastic. Yeah. Do any of them spin? Um, no. Some of them have been broken because they've been, there's been attempted spinnings, but uh, most of them are just kind of printed in place as solid objects. It was this big cube-shaped sculpture, maybe 10 feet high, made up of hundreds of hanging plastic wafers, all made on 3D printers. Yeah, they look kind of like monkeys in a barrel, except each one was a square. And they each had a different image or logo or shape in the middle of the square. And all of them were hanging on these long sheets. So they kind of looked like plastic curtains on a very narrow four-poster bed. There we go. And so this one is actually fitted in place. And it telescopes in and out. So. And so you can only do that when you have a really fancy laser centering printer that fuses a powder together one layer at a time in this kind of self-supporting bed. So some of these little links, including a green and black one with the Makerspace logo on it, were made at the library. And the idea behind hosting the sculpture was that there was a website set up where you could play with the generic design for one of the links, customize it, and print your own to add to the sculpture. And since the library has its own 3D printers, you could do the whole process right there. Right. So you might be wondering, who came up with this crazy idea? Well, it turns out that there's this whole community of 3D printing enthusiasts in Edmonton, and I got a hold of the mayor of that community. So hi, my name is Colin Pischke. I'm the COO at RepRap Warehouse and also the Edmonton 3D Hub's mayor. The project is called Link. Um, the goal of the project is to show the interconnected nature and the power of distributed manufacturing through desktop 3D printers. So I was looking for a way that we could have people here in Edmonton build something together, you know, bring them together, show them what they can do with a 3D printer. Um, and I came up with this, I heard about um, similar projects where people are making these 3D printed sculptures. Now, some of them are 
much more difficult where there's very unique pieces, you know, a hundred different very unique pieces and somebody has to print each individual one um, to complete this final intricate sculpture. And then I heard of this other company, Print Appear, who had done these this in the way where it's just standardized pieces that anybody can create a standard piece and each one of them interconnects very, uh, very fluently. So I reached out to the guys at Print Appear to see if they, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel and start from scratch on building one of these standardized sculptures, I reached out to Print Appear to see if they wanted to continue on the project that they had already started. So I reached out to them, they loved the idea, um, and it made everything very easy. So then we formed this partnership that we could build off previous momentum that they had from the sculpture in 2013, which was actually at the Beakerhead Festival. So then we brought up the pieces that they had already started or that they had had from 2013, um, but they hadn't actually completed this full skin of the sculpture. They had only been able to cover a couple of the walls. So now the object was to completely fill in those last couple hundred uh, links that we needed. So we sent out a mass, um, <laughs> a mass invitation to get involved. Um, we got coverage from different local medias uh, as well as international media. Um, for this call to get people to, to join. And thankfully, we got another around 400 links sent in from 15 different countries to help us uh, finish off the sculpture. So, an interesting idea to get people excited about manufacturing their own stuff. But 3D printers are still too expensive for most people to have one at home. So the project really only makes sense as a public collaboration in Edmonton in the context of the Edmonton Public Library's makerspace. How accessible would a project like this be if Edmonton didn't have the, the makerspace at the library? Well, it's becoming more and more accessible um, through companies like 3D Hubs that allows anyone who owns a uh, 3D printer to host a free online storefront, essentially. So the cost is a little bit more than what the makerspace is. But through 3D Hubs, there's almost 30 different 3D printers that anybody can access uh, through their platform. So it's, it's definitely becoming more and more accessible. However, the makerspace is definitely a huge help um, in, making, in making it happen, not only for people to create the link, but also to put it on display to bring attention to the project. And for Colin Pischke, the end game here is to start changing the way we think about the manufactured objects around us. What I believe is going to happen is for lots of basic household stationary things, uh, such as a soap dish holder or uh, a new shower head, rather than going out to the store, you can just go online, download the file, and print it in your own house. So right now, the materials are somewhat limited, but I believe further down the road, you know, if you need to get a bowl or you need to get a shower head, you need to get a soap dish holder or you know, any kind of those standard household items, rather than going out to a hardware store or Walmart, you can just 3D print it in your own house in close to the same amount of time it would take you to go and do that, but at a fraction of the cost. Well, we didn't want to get left behind by the future, so we decided it was time to make our own link. What do you want to do? Can we print a record? I think you could do a record. Really? Sure. Or we could do the CJSR logo. That would be easier, but I'm just out of curiosity. Yeah. Okay. We decided to go with the CJSR logo. <laughs> Uh, we actually had to Google it because we didn't have a copy with us. And once we went to the website set up for this project, really all we had to do was upload our 2D image, and the website made it into a 3D model for us. Sure. We're really in the deep web here. We went with the first result from Google Images? Exactly, yes. <laughs> 
And so once that's in a location where you know where it is, you just click upload. There's CJSR logo.jpg right in your inbox. You click upload, and approximately 10 seconds later, we have a nice Whoa, little graphic that's there. That's cool. And we can then send to our 3D printers and start printing. It's already 3D rendered. So, yep, pretty easy to use. They wanted to make it as simple as possible for people. So I think the uh, most difficult part of the whole process was remembering our password. There was unfortunately some robot arms and a model of a house already being printed. So once our design was 3D rendered and ready to be printed out, we just added it to the queue and they told us they'd call us in a couple of days when it was ready. So we just watched for a little while. It was cool seeing the printers. You can see a little nozzle suspended inside an open cube frame and kind of like how with a hot glue gun you can see the solid glue inserted at the top before it gets melted at the bottom. You could see the long skinny plastic filament for the printer feeding into the nozzle and getting squeezed out to create these emerging little plastic shapes. At this point though, when we left, you were starting to get skeptical how cool this was, right? Yeah. I mean, it was really fun, but what we saw people making and what we were making, it was all essentially toys. It just felt like we should be cautious about the idea that a collaborative art project or the tools of the makerspace or even the emergence of 3D printing in general is going to turn us into people who print out our own custom-designed doorknobs and soap dishes instead of just buying them at the store. So I poked around for someone in the 3D printing world who could add a bit of perspective to the conversation, and I found Nick Allen at a 3D printing company in the UK. Hi, my name is Nick Allen, and I am the founder of a company called 3D Print UK, a UK-based 3D printing service. We get inquiries from all over the world from all different walks of life every day. Um, they range from seven-year-old boys trying to build aeroplanes to uh, major architects. Many people, when they read about 3D printing on the internet or in newspapers or things like this, they read about it and they see that you can do something and there's the word printing there and you can do it at home. But what many of these articles don't cover is the actual cost of it and the complexities of it. So if you wanted to, for example, a, a, a common used example is people want to repair a broken dial on their cooker. Um, and you can just click print and it'll come out and then you can put it on. Whereas actually, realistically, you'll have to draw that model in 3D and then put it on your printer, set up your printer, calibrate your printer and print it out. And drawing up is a big skill. Uh, that's the major skill of it. It's a bit like if you're writing a letter. It's not when you click print. Uh, that's not the difficult bit. It's the writing the letter in the first place. Now, if you're willing to learn how to... Um, uh, design things in 3D space and, and CAD programs, then uh, then you're probably the kind of guy who's already got a ginormous toolkit and can probably fix that cooker knob in another way. Um, the, the, yeah, the skills required to actually design parts are, 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 are quite, quite, it's quite difficult. And you can get simpler, simplified CAD programs for, for novices, but all they're doing is removing features. So it's a bit like the difference between using Photoshop and using paint. You know, paint, you can draw a picture, but it's not going to be very nice, not very, very good, but it's very easy to use. Um, if you want to do decent CAD stuff, you're going to be looking at the sort of Photoshop version of the CAD program. You've also got the um, the printers themselves. They're not necessarily as plug and play as they're they're, they're sold and made out to be. Um, if you when you buy a printer, say you buy a printer, desktop printer for around about thousand dollars, you're going to end up with having to set it up and calibrate it. And you're you know you're working with physics and chemistry here. You end up with if, if the room temperature is different, 
you might have an issue with your printing. Um, you know, the, and these prints go wrong very easily and very regularly. And if you're not used to them, then then, then there's going to be a, a, a serious stage of uh, teething, so to speak, when you're uh, when you're when you're working with your printer for the first time. How far do you think a 3D printing project will realistically push people along the axis from being a consumer to being a creator? It's brilliant for the younger generation because if you're getting into uh, a 3D printing project uh, like this one, like the statue project, um, you're, and, you're, and you're, young, you're young and you're at school, it, it, it will excite you. It will get you going down the line or, or maybe, maybe um, inspire you to go down the line of design and manufacture. Um, but I think if you've already got a stable career, <laughs> you're probably going to think like, oh, this is a bit of fun. I'll, I'll, I'll do this on the weekends. Uh, but it may not go much further than that. 3D printing is a bit like having a microwave in a kitchen. You can get stuff done quickly with it, and it does the job, but it's not as good as doing a proper job of cooking a meal. They both need each other in various situations, but at the end of the day, the quality is always better from the traditional way rather than the, the, uh, the, the new 3D printed way. Interesting. So according to Nick Allen, traditional manufacturing is still higher quality and cheaper. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which also jives with what Makerspace assistant Ben Ellers told us about 3D printing's limitations and its context. The other big limitation that I can see is that the type of 3D printer that's cheap enough for most people to buy at home, the texture is pretty rough. Uh, it's not great for reliably making things with a lot of detail or small parts that work together. And because it lays down the plastic in these horizontal sheets on top of each other, the objects you make are not very strong if you push them sideways. This would be a bad way to print a house or a car. Yes. <laughs> well, Chris, we did go back and pick up our link. Yeah, uh, we have it right here. We paid 120 for the materials. And uh, yeah, it came in this little plastic bag. It's pretty cool and very red. It's like a, a red square plastic wafer. Uh, it's got this CJSR logo on it, and the star is kind of recessed behind the words. Yeah, uh, it's got these little hooks that uh, come off at the top, and when you attach them, you can use them to hang onto the sculpture, uh, kind of like monkeys in a barrel. But it's not hanging because it's not on the sculpture. Yes. <laughs> and uh, this is our, kind of the epilogue to our story. We took a while to pick it up, and by the time that we got there, uh, they'd actually moved the sculpture out of the library. And try as we might, we have not been able to track down where they sent it to. So here we are holding our lonely little 3D printed link. What did we learn? Well, um, I guess I learned um, to just think a little more critically about what the point is of 3D printing. Um, you know, why does it matter whether we print a doorknob or a soap dish at home instead of just buying it from Bed Bath & Beyond like everybody else? Um, you know, we, we live in this culture where most of us, most of our homes are filled with stuff from big stores that manufacture stuff for everybody in North America. So if you want like a new lamp for your house or a new toilet, it's probable that the one that you have is going to be pretty similar to what your neighbors have and what your friends have down the street and also what your relatives in Calgary or Saskatoon have too. So I guess um, I learned to just ask, why does it matter? Why do you think, Steph, does it matter having the ability to kind of print out a customized thing at home instead of having the same one as everybody else around you? 
I think it's nice to have that option out there. The idea that we can make it even if we're not using it, it's, I think it opens up possibilities for us. Like Steve Jobs made all the Apple softwares that people could do creative things with it. And I think the same thing's gonna happen eventually with the 3D printer once it becomes cheaper for people to actually get their ideas out there. I wonder though, you know, computers are something that a lot of us have in our own homes now. We also have computers in our pockets. Um, but are most of us using them in a creative way? I would say a lot of us aren't. We, you know, we, uh, if we, even if we have a blog or an Instagram feed, you know, we're, we're sharing the same things over and over. Yes, I sort of know what you mean. Like with, um, my idea is with like selfies. Is that what you kind of what you were thinking? Like everyone's taking the same kind of picture over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So like the technology is there, but people are using it in kind of the same way. Yeah. But at the same time, they're like bands, for example, they have more opportunity now to make music at home instead of having to go to a studio and book all the machinery required to make their music. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe if we put the tools in people's hands, they will become really creative. Maybe they won't. I don't know what the step is to push people to use those tools in a creative way. Uh, that's a good question. Maybe making things cheaper, making it cheaper to use. But um, if you ask me, I think people ha are being more creative now than they were 20 years ago. It's a hard thing to measure, though, right? Like, how creative are people? How do you measure that? Yeah. Thanks to Ben Ellers, the Edmonton Public Library, Colin Pischke, and Nick Allen for their help with the story. And thanks to Gizmodo, where we first read about Nick Allen's take on 3D printing. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks to our fellow contributor, Steph Varga, for her work. Uh, all That Matters is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. If you have any questions about the show or if you have an idea for a future episode, drop us a line. Our email address is allthatmatters at cjsr.com. And we're also on Twitter at ATMCJSR and on Facebook. You can find past episodes and leave us a comment on our website. It's allthatmatterscjsr.wordpress.com. Our theme music is by Dokash Teru. Until next time, I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Kay Rollins. Thanks for listening. Thank you.